Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon to talk about an important issue in HIV care, treatment for hepatitis C. Welcome, John. Hey, Mariana. Thanks so much for having me today, and I'm happy to be here to talk about hep C and HIV today. So, John, tell folks what exactly about HCV treatment we'll be talking about today. Yeah, so it's going to be pretty basic, I think. And I think most people who do hep C and HIV treatment, it's not, nothing earth shattering here. But if you haven't done it, you know, I think this will be helpful. But I'm going to cover basic information on hep C, um, especially for people who are um, eligible for what the guidelines call simplified treatment regimens. Um, so these are people who uh, recommend it for adults with chronic hepatitis C that don't have cirrhosis and have not previously received hepatitis C treatment. Kind of the easy people to treat is what we'll talk about today. John, before we move on, is there anyone who should not be getting simplified treatment? Yeah, so so the guidelines are really good and, and kind of have um they have like highlights of what you shouldn't do or what who shouldn't get simplified treatment. And the most important uh, pieces are the following. So first of all, if you've had prior hepatitis C treatment before, you would not qualify for these simplified regimens. You would kind of need more of a more in-depth workup. If you're cirrhotic, um, so they they have a, a separate section on um, simplified treatment for treatment naive patients. With compensated cirrhosis, but that's a little bit different than um, than the regimens here. Um, if you have hepatitis, if, um, hepatitis B surface antigen positive, uh, or HIV, if you have pregnancy, if you have known or suspected hepatocellular cellular carcinoma or prior prior liver transplant, technically you shouldn't get it. However, most of the regimens I'm going to talk about today, um, usually we would use these same regimens for for HIV. So just having HIV, you're probably going to be okay with most of the regimens that we're talking about today, assuming that you don't have cirrhosis and and you you know, think about the drug interactions, which I'll, which I'll talk about towards the end. Got it. Now for patients getting the treatment, what should be done prior? All right. So the most important thing you want to know is really to make sure that the patient has, you want to know if the patient has cirrhosis or not. So, you know, back in the day, we used to do liver biopsies where we'd actually go in they would take a needle and they would go in and take a piece of the liver and then they would, they would analyze it. And, and we don't do those liver biopsies anymore. It's no longer recommended. Uh, for the purpose of this guidance, there's a uh, there's basically a couple of things that, that you can do um, to perform a test to basically know how bad the, the liver is. The most important one that we that's probably one of the better ones is the fiber scan test. So it's, it's called this uh, transient elastography uh, TLA, basically um, uh, a TE, sorry, um, transient elastography, which indicates cirrhosis. That's usually uh, basically what it does is it measures how stiff the liver is. So if the stiffness is over 12.5 kilopascals, that means that you have liver stiffness, and you likely have cirrhosis. Um, there's also some non-invasive serologic tests that, uh, for example, there's a fiber shore, which is a blood test, which can actually give you a, a rating on how bad somebody's cirrhosis is. And then also, um, if you have clinical evidence of cirrhosis too, so if you have liver nodules or um, your spleen can get enlarged, and even platelet counts less than 150,000, all these indicate that somebody might have um, uh, might have cirrhosis. And then Obviously, if you did have a biopsy years ago and it showed it showed cirrhosis, likely you're probably going to still have it. So that would that would actually actually be helpful. But I think the two that I talked about in the beginning, the fiber scan or the fiber share, are probably going to be two of the common ones <clears throat> that most people are going to use, or variations of that to to determine if somebody has cirrhosis. Um, another thing too, you have to make sure you have to look at meds, and especially with HIV infected patients, making sure that they have 
um, good re uh, medication records, including over-the-counter herbal and dietary supplements, uh, looking at potential drug-drug interactions. There's some um, great uh, websites. Uh, the ASLD guidance is very good, but also many of us uh, use the University of Liverpool. It's hep-drugginteractions.org. There's also an hiv-drugginteractions.org, which is from the University of Liverpool uh, in the UK. Very good websites, very good access to hepatitis C. The ATC and also the um, uh, the DHHS guideline charts are very good for for um, for HIV Hep C drug interactions as well. And then educating the patient about proper administration of medications. Make sure they they take the meds and making sure they're um, uh, some of the strategies that we use to prevent reinfection, especially if people uh, may you may be surprised, but sometimes people may still be. Uh, using injection drugs and making sure that they understand all the harm reduction principles to, you know, that we're treating your hep C, but even if you're still using, make sure you're using clean needles so you don't get reinfected is really a big piece of what, of what we try to do uh, for, for patients. <clears throat> is there any lab testing that should be done in advance of starting treatment? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that's recommended in the guidelines, you know, it's obviously a CBC, which is a complete blood count, hepatic function panel, albumin, uh, total indirect bilirubin, um, ALT and AST, these are standard tests that people would do. <clears throat> you want to calculate, excuse me, an, an estimated GFR, which measures your renal function. And then um, obviously you, you need, you'll need a hepatitis C viral load. Uh, and potentially you probably even would need, um, some people would say you would need a, uh, a genotype as well to know what, what genotype you're treating. Although the pangenotypic regimens that we're using are usually okay for everything. Um, you also want to make sure that you have an HIV screen and hepatitis B surface antigen. All these things are important to, before you start therapy because it might actually make you tailor your therapy in a certain way. Make sure you're treating certain things beforehand. So these are all these are all important. But um, also, pregnancy tests should also be done, uh, and potentially um, some of these drugs can be teratogenic now, especially not in this setting, but in some of the cirrhotics, you may potentially be using ribavirin, definitely a teratogen. You want to know if somebody's pregnant and there really should be, uh, uh, you know, some of those risks should really be discussed with people of childbearing age. So once it's decided that treatment will be started, what recommended regimens should be used? Yeah. So, so the first thing I would just say is that really, you know, if somebody has hep C, um, you know, again, uh, we're, we are treating everybody back in the day, we didn't treat everybody. So that's the important piece too, is that regardless of, um, you know, of how, of how much, uh, even if they have cirrhosis or, you know, uh, regardless of how long they've been treated, you know, most of the time, I think if you find out that somebody's hep C infected, you know, the treatments are so good that and they are cures, you, you would, you would do it, uh, you would treat them. So there's two main ones, which, which are both pangenotypic regimens. So there's, um, what pangenotypic means that it covers all the genotypes. So if you think of genotypes, there's actually, there's actually six different genotypes. One A, and 1B are probably the most common. It probably accounts for about 65, 70%, if not more, uh, of the hepatitis C. And then two, three, four, five, and six are probably the other ones. I've never seen a five or a six. I'm sure people uh, listening today may have seen fives or sixes. Uh, we've seen definitely two, threes, and fours, though those are much more rare than the, than the genotype 1A and 1B. The 1A seems to be the most common one that we see. But the nice thing about these new drugs is that things that we don't have to worry about um, Things that we had to worry about four, three or four years ago, now we don't with the two main drugs that we use. And there, there's two of them. Uh, one of them is called Wicapavir plus Prebrentosphere. That's called Maverick. So many of you may have seen commercials on, on all the time about Maverick. Uh, it's, it's actually three pills taken uh, daily with food for a duration of eight weeks. And then the other one is Sophopatosphere, which, which is called Eclusa. Uh, which is uh, one pill once a day for a duration of 12 weeks. So just a little quick thing on naming. So any of the drugs that end in Previr, 
are protease inhibitors. The ASBIRs are NS5A inhibitors. And anything, anything that ends in Bouvier is an NS5B inhibitor. So Previers, Asvirs, and Bouvier's. And, you know, we always go through this with people when we're talking about hep C if they're not used to it. So like, for example, Maverit is the cap Provier and Prebrent Asvir. So it's a, it's a, it's a protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor. So Fosbuvir with Felpatosphere is an NS5B with an NS5A. So the mechanisms are a little bit different, but at the end of the day, they're pangenotypic. They cover one, two, three, four, five, and six. And, you know, basically the vast majority of these people wind up being what we call SBRs. So an SBR is a sustained virologic response. That's basically a cure to hepatitis, uh, hepatitis C. So the way this is done is that after you take your eight weeks of Maverick or your 12 weeks of Eplusa, we have them come back 12 weeks later to make sure that their hepatitis C RNA is still undetectable. And if it is still undetectable, they're basically considered a cure for the hepatitis C um, uh, hepatitis C infection. So it's very important that we, that we, that we make sure that they come back for that 12 week, uh, test to make sure that, that they're still undetectable. And again, assuming that they're, that they're a successful, successful SBR, we really have to make sure that there's really, um, for non-serotics, there's no liver related follow-up, but however, if you had cirrhosis, they do still recommend hepatocellular, um, uh, cancer, HCV, uh, carcinoma, HCC, screening uh, on a regular basis, um, which has to be done. But patients with ongoing hepatitis C infection, for example, uh, or risks, if, they, if they're still using IV drugs, or if they're still, if they're MSMs engaging in uh, unprotected sex, really, you have to talk about risk reduction counseling. And really, they should be tested for hepatitis C RNA annually. So a little caveat with this is that their antibodies, even if you've been cured, your hepatitis C antibody will still be positive because your body was still exposed to hepatitis C, that antibody test will always be positive. But what they need here is that after you've treated patients, you have to make sure that you do a hepatitis C RNA, actual viral load to see if the virus is there, yes or no, right? And that's really an important little, little caveat. Um, so a lot of times we hear this, we'll say patients been cured with their drugs and we'll say, oh, well, they still have hepatitis C because their antibodies positive. And that's not really true, right? What you need then is anytime you get a positive hepatitis C antibody, Body, you should always check the RNA too. And anybody who's been cured of hepatitis C, assume that they haven't been reinfected, that, that, that RNA, that viral load will be negative, but the hepatitis C antibody will continue to be positive. We also tell people to avoid excess alcohol use, and those numbers are different. There's a lot of different guidance, whether you're cirrhotic or not. Again, alcohol is obviously a big, a big concern for people that they've had after they've been treated. Um, so for those who haven't attained an SVR, and again, I'm going to say that's probably about 5% of the people, maybe, maybe a little bit higher, maybe 8%, but the vast majority of people with these two drugs that 95% of them get undetectable, especially if they don't have cirrhosis. Um, if, if they fail to, re, uh, to, to, to get an SVR or a cure, they really should be uh, sent to a specialist for retreatment uh, in accordance to some of the guidance from, from ASLD and IDSA. Uh, assessment of the disease progression every six to 12 months until they're retreated really should be looked at. And again, advise patients to, to avoid excess alcohol use. I would also say, I think, and this is just my opinion, and again, people may differ, but I think a lot of these patients that don't cure, they probably were not adherent. They, they're telling you that they're taking it, but they probably weren't. And again, it it's not always true, but I think that's a piece of it. If people take their drugs in the setting, very much like HIV, now with HIV, it's a chronic disease, but you get your, uh, you get your HIV viral load undetectable, you get your undetectable viral load here too, um, and, but here, when you're, once you're undetectable, you're considered a cure and it's different for HIV, obviously. Um, so that's really, really the key piece. So really good drugs, right? 
Um, safety profiles are, are, are pretty good. You know, we don't see major problems that we used to see with pegylated interferon plus, plus ribavirin. And I think anybody really at this point for a non-serotic patient, any primary care doctor, anybody could treat hepatitis C. You don't need to see a specialist if you just have uncomplicated hepatitis C. It's really pretty easy to, to do. The hardest part is getting insurance to pay for it, which it's covered everywhere. You just have to kind of go through some hoops to, to make sure it happens. Are there any issues with drug interactions that providers and patients should be aware of? Yeah. So again, this is my specialty, right? As a pharmacist. So drug interactions, a couple of things that um, some of the drugs that are inducers, these are the drugs that will drop the drug levels of other meds. So St. John's wort, some of the, some of the anticonvulsants um, and then the HIV medications, some of them are inducers too. Some of our old ones that we don't use as much, for example, a Fabrins, which is in Sestiva and a Tripla, Neverapine, which is Viramune. Really a lot of people aren't aren't on that anymore. And sometimes you might see etrovirine um, uh, used occasionally, but these drugs you don't see very often used for, for most patients. With um, with some of the CYP450 or PGP inhibitors or substrates um, with, with statins, they're all a little bit different. So I just encourage you to really make sure if you have somebody on a statin, make sure you're looking to see what they're on and what hepatitis C meds you're going to be using. And you know even some of the protease inhibitors, a lot of them can be problematic with the HIV protease inhibitors. So for example, just make sure you look, like if they're on adazanivir, darunavir, or lopinavir for HIV, there might be some interactions with some of the previer hepatitis C drugs, for example, glucaprovir in, in this setting. These are all things that you really should be making sure you're checking ahead of time before you treat. PPIs can be a problem too. These are some of the proton pump inhibitors. Again, some of the DA direct acting antivirals for hepatitis C need to be separated out, some together with food. Some of them say there's, a, there's an interaction in the European label, but not on the U.S. label, again, looking at databases before somebody you know goes on these treatments, I think is really important. But even with PPIs, some of the real-world data really shows that you have really minor impact on on SVR if you're on a PPI. Um, most of them are going to be okay with H2 blockers, antacids, but again, you usually have to separate them. You just have to look at the label. Some of the weird ones that are there, like digoxin, with some of the Hep C protease inhibitors, can increase digoxin levels. So there's not a lot of people on digoxin, but there might be if you have older patients. Uh, and even patients with like refractory um, AFib or heart failure, you may see uh, digoxin used, and some of those drug levels can be increased. And then there's the biggest one I think to be worried about is from a safety standpoint is this one with amiodarone. So amiodarone is, um, uh, you have to avoid it with sofosbuvir containing regimens. And again, if you're not using these two other regimens, I can tell you that there's a lot of other interactions with um uh, there's a lot of other regimens that contain sofosbuvir. So amiodarone with that, you really, unless you absolutely um, need it, you have to see the label for guidance, but there's a good information in there. It'll tell you um, a lot of these patients, they should, probably should be taken off of the amiodarone if you're going to use sofosbuvir because of an interaction. And there actually have been um, some patients, their blood pressure can bottom out and it's, it's a little scary. So you have to really make sure you're doing the right thing, uh, uh, thing with them. So um, just a couple things. Uh, um, I just want to make sure we cover here, like for 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 once a day proton pump inhibitors, like for for the stuff we're talking about here, like sofvelpatasvir, that's a Clusa. It's really not recommended to, um, to, with PPIs with once a day, but if you if you have to do it, you can take the sofvelpatasvir with food four hours before omeprazole. That's one thing you can do. Um, the, but the H two blockers, you have to take them together or twelve hours apart, so it gets a little confusing. And then with GP, again, with Maverick, it's none. there's no interaction with the PPIs and there's really no data with H2 blockers, but they're, they're probably okay. So just really make sure you check 
proton pump inhibitors and H2 blockers to make sure um, we're doing we're doing the right thing. And the last one I'll cover is immunosuppressants. Sometimes we do see patients uh, on tacrolimus or serolimus or cyclosporin. And I'll give you a perfect example. What we're doing now, like let's say somebody needs a kidney, right? So if somebody needs a kidney transplant, what we're doing is transplanting hepatitis C infected kidneys, right, into people who who don't have um, who don't have hepatitis C but need a kidney transplant, and then they subsequently once the transplant's done, they quickly treat the hepatitis C to clear it, right? So it, the treatment of hepatitis C, because it's so much easier, has led to us to use, uh, for example, kidneys that from hepatitis C infected donors. So if that happens, this is a perfect example where somebody may be on, a, on an immunosuppressant for, for their rejection, to prevent rejection for, the, for, the, for their kidney, and they may be treated with hepatitis C uh, medications pretty quickly right after they... Um, right after they, they get transplanted, all right? So you have to be careful, careful of those. And I won't spend a ton of time on those, but just know that they're, they're out there. And then one of the things I would just really kind of uh, highlight is some of the older, uh, the older Tenofovir formulation, the TDF formulation versus the TAF, some of these levels can be increased by some of the protease inhibitors. So some people are a little cautious about that, but most people are using the TAF, which is the newer formulation, the allophenamide formulation of Tenofovir. So you usually don't see this, see this too much. So some kind of big summary points, right? So uh, with Capavir, Pabrenthesvir, that's the Maverick. It's three pills once a day for eight weeks with food. Uh, or you can do um, Epclusa, which is the soft Valpatosphere, one pill once a day for 12 weeks. Now, the biggest thing is making sure the patients don't have cirrhosis. That's where it gets a little bit tricky in the beginning. These are pangenotypic. They cover everything. Watch out for drug interactions. And then really, I think the most important thing is uh, to make sure that our patients who get treated with hepatitis C and our cures, that they have the information to um, uh, to continue to do harm reduction principles so that they don't get reinfected, I think is really, really the key point. And that includes, um, um, you know, one of the things we, we talk about in HIV about PrEP, right? So we have people on PrEP and a lot of times there's a lot of people who are on PrEP aren't using condoms. And, and there, there is a risk of, of sexual retransmission of hepatitis C through, through, um, through unprotected sex. So we have to be aware of that. And then obviously clean needles for, for people who are going to continue to use, um, potentially use injection drugs after they've been, after they've been treated. And this is the reality of our disease states, right? Patients, you know, they, you meet them where they are, you do what you can for them. And I think you do the, your best to make sure that they, um, they are treated effectively. Uh, but knowing that, you know, even if they're not using drugs today, um, that may change. Um, although they may not be having unprotected sex today, that may change. So I think the, to discuss those kind of harm reduction principles, I think is really, really, really key. And I will say there are, there are cases out there that even if people are actively using, they still treat people's hepatitis C and they've done it successfully, again, successfully, again, with those, some of those harm reduction principles, there are places that both in New York City and even in Buffalo, there's other places I'm sure that are, that are doing this as well. John, thank you so much for joining us today and going through so much really great information about HCV treatment basics for providers. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know.
This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.